Dr. Richard Heyer studies the neural basis of human intelligence and cognition. He works with neuroimaging technologies to study individual differences in mental ability. He received his PhD in psychology from the Johns Hopkins University in 1975 and has since held appointments in the intramural research program at the National Institute of Mental Health and the medical school at Brown University and the University of California at Irvine. Irvine. He has served on the editorial board of three journals, Neuroimage, Intelligence, and Psychiatry Research. He also served as guest editor for a special issue on brain imaging research for the journal Intelligence. He provides neuroscience consultation to university research groups, corporations, foundations, and educational and legal professionals. He's a popular lecturer and has appeared in numerous media outlets. In 2012, his research was featured on Nova Science Now, and he received the Distinguished Contributor Award from the International Society for Intelligence Research. In 2013, the teaching company invited Richard to create an 18-lecture course called The Intelligent Brain. So welcome to Dr. Richard Heyer today, and we're going to talk about the most controversial of all topics, I would say, in social science, strangely enough, um, intelligence. So maybe we could start with a little bit of, of, of historical information. Um, I would like to know how you got interested in IQ research or in intelligence research, let's say. And, and, and so let's start with that, and then we can start diving, diving into the nitty-gritty. Well, really, it, it started in graduate school um, at Hopkins when I really became most interested in personality research. And I started out uh, studying individual differences in personality. But just by happenstance, the year I started graduate school in 1971 was the year one of the professors there, Julian Stanley, was oh, starting yeah. a study of mathematically precocious youth. And um, I was one of the proctors at the very first talent search for mathematically precocious kids. And I wrote my first couple of papers as book chapters in, in, in books that Stanley uh, was editing about this project. And I saw these, these kids, age 10, 11, 12, who were scoring higher on SAT math than Hopkins freshmen. And the question was, you know, how does this happen? Where does this come from? So that was kind of my earliest interest. And in graduate school, although I really completed my, my dissertation on, on personality, uh, I took my first job at the National Institute of Mental Health in the intramural research program in the Laboratory of Psychology and Psychopathology, which at the time, the lab director was David Rosenthal, who had just finished the Denmark adoption studies of schizophrenia. Right, right. And here is where I learned about genetics. My office was next door to a, a fellow named Monty Buxbaum, who was doing both potential mm -hmm. research. Yep. And I'm very interested in that. And so my, my early interest in, in, in uh, individual differences slowly morphed into an interest in individual differences in intelligence. And at NIMH, they were just going through a transition from kind of a psychoanalytic uh, orientation to a neuroscience orientation. And I was kind of caught up in that. And so that's the origin of my interest in the brain 
and in uh, technologies to make brain measurements and relate that to individual differences. Okay, right. Okay, now you just wrote a book too on the neuroscience of intelligence, Cambridge University Press. And so when did that come out? That came out um, really just about six months ago. So it came out, I think, in December of 2016, but they tell me for publishing reasons, they call it a 2017 publication. I see. Well, I'm, part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you is that I've done a, a very large amount of research, especially not so much practical lab research, but investigation into the structure of intelligence and into its measurement. We, we designed back in 93 with a student of mine, Daniel Higgins, we designed I think what was probably the first online battery purporting to measure the cognitive abilities associated with dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right? So hypothetically, the highest order cognitive functions in the brain. And we found much to our chagrin, I would say, and this was a very painful discovery that a lot of what we had been thinking about as potentially separable neuropsychological functions were pretty easily collapsible into good old general intelligence, you know, that killer central factor that seems to unite cognitive abilities. And so it was quite a shock, especially because the neuropsychologists of the time, and they still do this, uh, are, aren't, aren't as um, assiduous in investigators of the psychometric intelligence literature as they should be and tend to underestimate the central power of that, that initial factor. So anyways, I'm really interested in intelligence research, partly from a practical perspective too because the the industrial organizational psychology literature is crystal clear for complex jobs the best predictor of long-term success is intelligence and it's a predictor that's probably say imagine you give it an r of 0.4 to 0.5 which is pretty decent so let's say 25 percent of the variance the next best predictor is conscientiousness and it's pushing its limit at mopping up 10 percent of the variability in long-term performance so IQ, it's a killer, man, and it, we, I make sure my students assess intelligence with everything they do, and it always ends up being a major predictor of things that you wouldn't even expect, like disgust sensitivity, for example, so your disgust sensitivity is higher if you have a lower IQ. Yeah, Uh, the G factor is powerful. You just said something, though, that I want to just make a, a distinction about. You were talking about the G factor, and then you kind of called it IQ. Mm hmm This is very common in everyday language to talk about intelligence, IQ, and what we call the G factor as one thing, and it really isn't. So an IQ score is a good estimate of the G factor. Right. It also includes other aspects of intelligence. And intelligence in itself, although it's a broad term, is only uh, part of the universe of mental abilities. So if you're very good at, say, calculating on what day January 5th was in the year 1520, that's a mental ability that some people have. doesn't mean you're smart. Right, yes. Well, that's, you see that with autistic savants often, that they're exactly. not often, but sufficiently often. They have these amazing calcula- calculation abilities, for example, that don't seem to be manifest in a, in a spectacularly high overall intelligence. Well, so... What do, you, what do you want to tell us about? you want to start with the book and, and walk us through it? Well, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's interesting because the book is kind of a culmination of uh, things I've learned mostly from my neuroimaging work on intelligence. 
And it kind of came as a surprise. It's the first book I've ever written. I'm now retired, actually, from academia. Never wrote a book while I was in academia. I was writing, you know, journal papers. Uh, But Cambridge University Press called, and they have this series of fundamentals of neuroscience. And they wanted to include intelligence. And I regarded that as a major step because intelligence research really has been relegated almost to uh, the peripheral of mainstream psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the, politically suspect, to say the least. Yeah, and, you know, the, the switch happened overnight from may, being in the mainstream to being really peripheral mm-hmm. uh, in about 1969. Before 1969, uh, almost everyone who was interested in education was concerned about the achievement gaps. Right. And they felt universally that once you equalized educational opportunities, those achievement gaps would disappear pretty yeah. fast. Yeah, that was the head start, the head start point. Well, I mean. Yeah, even before head start. Head start it, it came to head start. But even before Head Start, there were all these demonstration projects. There was the miracle in Milwaukee, and there were all these things that showed that if you you really intervened in early childhood education, uh, which at that time was called compensatory education, the early childhood education term came much later. But this idea of compensatory education really took off. And then... In 1969, the Harvard Educational Review asked one of the foremost educational psychologists, Arthur Jensen, to write a review of the progress. And this article in 1969 has become infamous. The opening sentence was essentially, we've tried compensatory education and it has failed. Yeah. And then he had 100 pages of detailed statistical analysis of why there were no, you couldn't demonstrate an increase in IQ score in any of these programs. Now, Head Start had had just begun, so Head Start wasn't included. Yeah, but But, I I reviewed the literature on Head Start too extensively, and basically what happened was that the, so that was, for those of the viewers who don't know, Head Start was a a nationwide attempt to to add additional education to the lives of disadvantaged kids, especially, you know, at, at the preschool level and basically what happened was that they actually did show improvements in academic achievement initially so in grade one and grade two they were performing above their peers but then the difference in improvement the difference in performance started to decrease and then by about the grade grade five or grade six the differences had disappeared completely so there was no evidence whatsoever of that of that either of a stable one-time long-term gain in cognitive ability or what people were really hoping was that if you intervened early enough you'd get something that would sort of would turn into a positive feedback loop and the gains would actually advance across time and what ended up happening with the Head Start research basically was the conclusion that it produced no cognitive improvements whatsoever although more kids who went through Head Start um, graduated from high school fewer of them were delinquent more of them Fewer of them became pregnant in teenage in the teenage years, and more of them went to colleges. But that seemed to be because they were better socialized, not because they were in any way had been made smarter. So that was a really tremendous disappointment because it was a bipartisan attempt to 
come to grips with the fundamental issues that sort of bedeviled structural poverty in the United States. No one was happy about that outcome, I can tell you. Well, so, not only that, but when Jensen published his article, he also said that since IQ increases seem not to be coming from these intense environmental um, interventions, we should consider the possibility that these differences have a genetic component. And that really began the incendiary descent of intelligence yep. research to the periphery. Yep. The reaction against that was universal because uh, it implied a genetic <laughs> inferiority if you didn't well, it, have genes for IQ. It, it's also something that's universally hated on both sides of the political spectrum because on the liberal end, you know, the idea fundamentally is, is that everybody's the same and that if you if you distribute education resources properly then everyone can succeed and so that didn't work out so well for the liberals and then on the conservative side the idea is well if you could just get off your lazy asses and get a job there is a job for you out there and the, the truth of the matter is you know you can tell me what you think about this but this was a statistic that just absolutely shocked and staggered me when I went through the intel intelligence literature so you know it is illegal in the United States to induct anybody who has an IQ of less than 83. And the reason for that is, you know, that the American Armed Forces have been conducting intelligence research for like more than 100 years. And that was partly because they needed a way of sorting people rapidly during times of, of military expansion during wartime. But it was also because IQ tests, and especially in the early part of the 20th century, were used to identify, let's say, the deserving poor who could really benefit from additional educational attainment and advancement. And the unit and the military was hoping to identify people from lower class strata that could be uh, streamed into say officer training programs and so forth or, or even skills training programs to to move people from the underclass into at least the working class and maybe above so they had a bloody stake in this man they wanted to yeah. find people they wanted to sort them properly and they wanted to do social good when they weren't just trying to win a war let's say which often also is a, a social good but what happened was that by, I don't remember when this legislation was introduced, but it wasn't, it was in the later part of the 20th century. But their basic finding was that by, say, the 1980s, they had determined that if you had an IQ of less than 83, there was not a damn thing that the, that the army could do, the armed forces could do, to transform you into someone who could do something that was more productive than non-productive. And the ter terrible thing about that is that it's about 10% of the population. And so... You look at a statistic like that and you think, oh my God, you've got this, 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 this enterprise, this massive enterprise that's chronically hungry for people. Right? It's always, they're always looking for people. They're really oriented towards taking people from the underclass and lower working class and pushing them up the societal strata. And during wartime, they're actually desperate to bring in recruits, period. And their conclusion is that 10% of the population can't be trained to do anything anything sufficiently useful to make them militarily operable. It's just, I just read that, my jaw just dropped. It's like... Well, yeah, it, you know, in the United States we have about 330 million people and because of the distribution, the, the relatively normal distribution of IQ scores, about 16% have IQs of 85 or less. Right, right. Which means they're not going to graduate school. 
No, it means that from from what I've read practically, it means the Wonderlit company has actually done a really, they have a nice IQ test from the commercial perspective. You know, it's actually psychometrically valid. And they've linked IQ levels to uh, to job, specifically to job categories, you know. Yes, I, and, yeah, I know. Not, and not, well, what I was going to say is they're not only not going to graduate school, they're not going to find a, a stable job that pays a livable wage. Yeah. Now, especially even given that so many of the service jobs now require a fair high degree of, of computational savvy, or ability, no, I mean, not computation, but ability to interact with complex computational technology. Even the typical till at a, at a checkout market or, or the till at a McDonald's, because McDonald's is actually very complicated, is, is often far beyond the ability of people who are on the low end of the intelligence distribution. And they claimed, I think it was Wonderlick, Although it might not, it might have been it might have been Hunt. What's his name? These uh, IQ researcher is it Earl Hunt? I think possibly. Earl Hunt. What he claimed that that if you have an IQ of below ninety, that it's it's difficult it's dif difficult for you to read well enough to translate what you're reading into action. So you can't actually read instructions and follow them. You don't have that level of literacy. That's and, correct. Yeah. So so I, I was going to say that in in the United States. This bottom 16% translates into 51 million people, yeah, right? including 13 million children who are in school. Right. This is a very difficult problem. Now, I knew Earl Hunt. He passed away last uh -huh. year. Knew him pretty well. He also would say that there is this uh, uh, cognitive segregation in society. This is a point that Charles Murray makes. Yeah. Makes. Well, and Earl would often ask, uh, you know, when's the last time you had someone over for dinner who wasn't a college graduate? Yeah. Well, that was something that Murray and Herrnstein wrote about in their book, The Bell Curve, which really struck me, because I read that book twice, unlike most of the people who <laughs> criticized it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that they pointed out in there was, look, the, the, typical, the typical educated person thinks that someone isn't very bright if they have an IQ of 115. So this we're talking about gra graduate, graduate level and PhD level research institutions, right? Because 115, there's, there's as many people at 115 above as there are at 85 and below. And right. so it's a minority of the population. And that's the top 15%. And, you know, that's, that's the duller undergraduate. Right. So and you just people have. See, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've dealt with people who had I ranges in the low 80s, and tried to find them jobs and tried to train them. And I I have some real knowledge about the stunning gap between people at the low end of the IQ distribution and the high end. And it's it's no bloody wonder people hate IQ research and intelligence research because it reveals a set of seriously uh, dismal facts about the in incredible range of ability among human beings. Well, yes, um, uh, this, this is true, and moreover, I would add to this, that people in universities, professors and, and graduate students, uh, have a hard time understanding what, the, what everyday life is like if you have an IQ of 80 right. or 85, and you're making your way, you're living independently, you're making your way in the world, but it is a challenge. <laughs> it is a real, I mean, uh, just challenge. Just, it just barely begins to describe it. I had a, I had a client who, he probably had an IQ of under 80, 
the nonverbal portion of it anyways. And um, he was indistinguishable in physical appearance from, from, let's say, I hate to use the frame normal person, but there, there's nothing mar that marked him out about particularly intellectually impaired, you know. And uh, I tried at one point, this, is, this, this was so, so telling to me, I got him a, uh, an int a volunteer job, which, by the way, is very difficult. It's harder to get a volunteer job than a real job because you have to do police screening and all sorts of things, and the selection process is just as extreme. But I eventually ended up getting him a job at a bike store, bike-slash-bookstore, but that place couldn't hold him once the uh, subsidy program had expired. And then I got him a job at a charity, and his job was to fold letters into three so that they could be put into envelopes. Well, that sounds easy, except that he also had a bit of a motor tremor. And, you know, it took me about 30 hours to train him to fold up a piece of paper with sufficient precision so that it could be put in an envelope rapidly, so that the envelope wasn't so mangled that it would get stuck in the automatic sorting machine. And, you know, there was high performance demands on him, too. He had to whip through those letters pretty quickly. And then sometimes the letters would have a photograph appended to them that was stapled on and they weren't always stapled on in the same place so then he had to calculate how to fold the paper over the photograph without bending the photograph in precise thirds so that it would still fit in the envelope and then he had to separate the French letters from the English letters and associate them with the proper envelopes and like that level of complexity just did him in you know? me, and so let me, let me say two things about this one is I hope common sense, and the other is pretty provocative. The common sense thing is we have to be very careful when we have these discussions not to devalue the human dignity of people who aren't in the upper end of the distribution. And if there's one criticism that I think is fair is sometimes in these conversations it sounds like we're devaluing people at, at you know, the lower end of the distribution. And we have to be very careful that we don't do that. Uh, human life has dignity, and IQ is not the most important thing that defines human yes. beings. Even yes, it's not associated with wisdom. It's not necessarily associated with truth or with courage or with many virtues that, that are being likable. Right. It's not correlated like at all with being likable. You know, or honest. Yeah, that's right. Well, we know the psychometric, the psychometric relationship between intelligence and conscientiousness is zero. Right, right. So, so I think we have to make that point. Yes, I think I agree. I agree. No, I'm tr trying to make the point about how difficult it is for people who are on the low end of the cognitive spectrum to survive in an in a increasingly complex, cognitively sophisticated environment. Right. Their jobs are just disappearing. Yes, absolutely. And now let, let's ask the question. Is there anything that could be done about that? Well, Western society has tried very hard with a number of environmental, environmentally based interventions, early childhood education. By the way, the, 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 you said the, the literature in organizational psychology is very clear. The literature is equally clear in educational psychology. Oh, yeah, well, the relationship between IQ and learning is even more powerful than the relationship between IQ and job performance. That, that's right, which is kind of common sense, or it matches our common sense. But, you know, if you put a bunch of variables into a regression equation to predict academic achievement, 
and you have all these school quality variables and teacher quality variables and cognitive variables of the students. And what you find is the teacher variables and the quality of the school variables together barely account for 10% of the variance. Yeah, I know, I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. Well, you know, and I talked to the guy who ran admissions at Harvard. I taught at Harvard for a while. His name was Dean Whitlaw, and he is a really smart guy. I really like Dean. And, you know, he was, let's say, he was on the right side of the human race, and he was really trying to figure out how to run the admissions policy at Harvard so that it did the best for everyone concerned. And he had run an interesting series of analysis that I don't believe he ever published, and one of them was... Um, well, let's say you segregate the Harvard population into the relatively low IQ kids, so maybe they only have an IQ of 130, you know, and the relatively high IQ kids who are pushing up towards to 160. So you got two competing hypotheses there. One would be that the, the lower IQ kids um, come to Harvard, this remarkable environment, and they and they and and they they thrive because of the high educational quality so well that they close the gap between them and the 160 kids. And that's just complete, completely wrong. What happens is you put both those groups there, both very, very highly uh, uh, selected, but some, you know, in this in this sort of Superman rage intellectually. And what happens is the gap just gets bigger and bigger as they progress through university. And it, it's a dreaded example of that uh, Matthew principle that the economists talk about, which is, you know, to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, everything will be taken. It's very, very, it's no wonder people dislike this research. It's so, it's so anti-egalitarian in, it, in its essential, in its essential structure. Well, I, want, I wanted to make a, a second point that I said would be provocative. If you want to do something about this, and, you know, we tried a, a bunch of interventions, earnest, well-funded, long-term interventions don't seem to work. But neuroscience has been excluded from discussions about what to do about this. And I believe that neuroscience, the progress in neuroscience research has the potential to really dramatically increase the G factor. Hmm. Well, that's an optimistic statement, so I'm sure we're looking forward to some support for that one. It's optimistic and, and, and controversial. And, you know, just as a thought experiment, and I can tell you why I believe this is, is possible. Well, well, first, before I tell you the thought experiment, the reason I, I'm optimistic is that be, it is because of the high heritability of the G-factor. That means, you know, if genes are involved, genes work through biology, even if environment interacts with that. But basically, you have a neurobiological system. It's complex, but as you begin to understand it, you can tweak it. This is what all medicine is doing now. They're trying to understand the neurobiology slash genetic basis of our health and our diseases. Why? So they can fix it. <laughs> So they can, you know, when you go to the doctor, you're going because your biology is broken and you want your biology fixed. Well, let's think about the brain. Now, no one conceptualizes low IQ as a disease, and it's a little dangerous. But to the extent to which low IQ has a genetic input or a genetic influence, that's the extent to which you might be able to, to find out how that works how that's what that system is 
and then figure out how to tweak that system to increase IQ. It's not science fiction. I mean, that's, that's a, a plausible sequence of events. What the, the problem is it's a very complex sequence of sure. events. But I also think it's a finite set of problems, not an infinite set of problems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if physicists, if, if physicists can figure out what happened during the first nanoseconds of the Big Bang, we can certainly figure out what the neurobiology of, of intellect is and, and how to tweak it. So I think that's possible. So now let's, let's do a thought experiment. And let's imagine there's an IQ pill. And I mean that metaphorically, not literally a pill you could take, like putting, uh, you know, a floor, but like having fluoridated water just kind of raises the, the dental health of everybody. It would be nice if we had that for IQ. But just imagine what it would be like if we shifted the distribution of IQ 15 points into the high end so that now the average IQ and I understand how IQ is computed and norming and everything, but the point is that no one would have an IQ less than 100. Right. What would the world be like if everyone could reason sufficiently to get a, a reasonable job? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, the, 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 what would you call the perverse part of me? That's funny. I was just talking to one of my graduate students. Um, we'd be looking at the determinants of male attractiveness by the personality of female viewers. Okay. Okay, and so what we found is that there are some personality effects. So um, extroverted, enthusiastic women tend to rate men, generally speaking, as more attractive than introvert and introverted and less enthusiastic women. And um, and so so there are some just straight personality effects, but the biggest effect by far we found was the proclivity of of women in general to rate men as less attractive as the women's IQ increased. And so the other thing that we don't know is what price we pay for for accelerated IQ from a from a broader perspective, you know, because I, I know that there is some evidence, and you can tell me what you think about this, because I know that there's reasonable evidence that the average IQ of the Ashkenazi Jewish population is about 15 points higher than the the standard population, which kind of makes it a thought experiment that's or an experiment, real-life experiment that's equivalent to the one that you laid out. But Ashkenazi Jews also tend to suffer from a host of neurological diseases that seem to be associated with increased neuroplasticity. And so, to me, it's often, it's often hard to gain on one front without losing on another. You know, I mean, that's the evolutionary conundrum, obviously, but... We call that the social justice theory. If yeah, right. On one thing, you have to be bad on everything else to kind of balance it out. Yeah, well, generally uh, speaking, you do pay a price for your for your exceptionalism, you know. Uh, I don't think that's true because uh, you know the, uh, the the Julian Stanley studies of the mathematically precocious kids essentially found not only were they smart, but they were more mature than their age peers. Yeah. They were better looking. They were taller. They were physically more fit. I mean, it was kind of the anti-social. Yeah, no, no, I, no, that's true. So, well, I mean, it's just, it, that also might be true because one of the things that, that, that can interfere with IQ is poor health and, and poor nutritional quality and all of that. I mean, it, it doesn't look like it's that easy to increase IQ, but it looks like it's pretty easy to decrease it. 
Yeah, I, you know, uh, I think that those those things have to be pretty extreme. Yeah. To, to have an effect, and those effects may not be permanent. Actually, there's some studies of uh, deprivation of people who suffered suffered deprivation during the Second World War uh, that suggest that those. Uh, really severe deprivations didn't have lasting effects on them. Mm. Well, you know, well, people so, are pretty tough, so I'm inclined to agree with that. So, so have you seen any animal experiment, experimental work that you regard as compelling that shows something like the transformation of, of animal cognition into a, into something that's, 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 that's higher order that, that you regard as compelling? Not sure what you mean, but there's certainly animal work uh, that shows you can extract a G factor from cognitive tests given to various animals. Right. So, so I, what I was wondering is, has there been any evidence that you regard as credible showing that that could be that that so-called animal G factor extracted in the same? We should tell our readers too the way you extract the G factor. I'm I'm going to say it very very rapidly. Is imagine you take a uh, a randomly set randomly selected set of 200 questions that require abstraction of one form or another to solve. And then you give those 200 questions to 100 people and you sum the scores and you rank order them. You get something that's roughly equivalent there to a G factor. It's roughly that. So just I, I would say it a little bit differently just okay. so everyone's on the same page. If you think of all the different mental abilities and you devised a test for each one of them, and you gave this test to a, a, a lot of people across a, the range of ability, what you'll find is the scores on all those tests are positively correlated with each other, suggesting that all tests of mental ability have something in common. Right, sure, that's a great and way of putting common it. common is this G factor, this general ability to reason. And some individual tests have more G-loading than other individual tests. Right. So, yes. uh, and tests of abstract reasoning tend to be highly G-loaded. Right. If I said to you, repeat the following numbers back to me, three, seven, two, one, six, five, that's the, not a very highly G-loaded mental ability to be able to do that. But if I gave you a string like that and said, repeat them to me backwards, that becomes a G-loaded ability because you right. do a transformation. Yes, so, well, the other thing to say about that, too, is that the, the positive relationship between that those multiple assessments that you described is actually quite high. Right. Right, that's the thing, is that that general factor not only exists across domains of cognitive ability, but it tends to account for a substantial amount of the, of the ability in each of those domains. So right. it's kind of like a G is kind of like a black hole for intelligence research, and everything keeps falling into it. So, <laughs> so that's an interesting way to put it, because now we have these uh, uh, genome-wide association studies that are finding uh, these bits of DNA that are related to a latent factor of intelligence, which is the G factor, or to what they call educational attainment variables. Educational attainment is so highly correlated with IQ that's essentially the, the same thing. So we're really moving. When I, when I was in graduate school, the question was, is there a genetic component to intelligence or not to this kind of DNA analysis, trying to find bits of DNA 
that are going to be related to what we call uh, intelligence or IQ testing or, or, or the G factor. And they seem to exist. There seems to be hundreds of them, each a tiny effect, uh, which will make the ultimate story extremely uh, complicated. But as I said before, I think it's a finite set of problems. Right, right. And at the end of that sequence of solving those problems, I think there's a good chance we'll know how to increase IQ. And I think it's a good thing to be able to do that. You know, I've said publicly that more intelligence is better than less. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get criticized because that implies that people with less intelligence aren't as worthwhile. That's why I want to be very careful that I don't believe that. Yes, but I they have harder lives is more the accurate way of thinking about it. And their lives in a narrower range of possibilities and opportunities. That's right. And in my view, my political bias is, therefore, governments have a, a moral responsibility to help those people. And, and, and uh, uh, a lot of government programs are, are, aren't going to do it because, you know, job training requires a certain level of G. Uh, and oh, so, yeah. My, my, my low IQ clients, they used to go to the government agencies that were designed to help people find employment. And, you know, the typical response was, well, just go home and type up your CV and distribute it. It's like, yeah. uh, you're, you just go, like, I can't use a computer. I can't type. I don't know what a CV is. It's like it's, it's a non-starter in all three counts. That's right. That's right. So in the United States, there are 51 million people with IQs under 85, and there are about 43 million people living in poverty. Do you think those Venn diagrams intersect? Yeah. Well, we should also be clear about this because it is so politically suspect is that it's not like it's 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 self-evident that people who have less cognitive capability are likely to end up poor because there are serious complex problems in life that beset them that they have a difficult time dealing with and they can't learn as quickly. And so the relationship between poverty and intelligence is self-evident if you're willing to think it through for any length of time. It doesn't mean that everybody who's rich that is, it doesn't mean that everyone who is rich is smart, and it doesn't mean that everyone who is poor is stupid, what it, to, to be blunt. But what it does mean is that if you're intelligent, you're much more likely to become financially successful. And I think it was the Herrnstein, Herrnstein and Murray, I think, did the calculations back in the bell curve that indicated that if you imagine that you could, you were a fairy godmother and, and you have a, your newborn grandchild in front of you and you can grant them three standard deviations above the mean um, in terms of wealth at birth, or you can grant them three standard deviations above the mean in terms of IQ at birth, and then you wanted to determine which would work better for them by the time they were 40, and the answer to that was quite clear, is that IQ trumps wealth. Right. If it's ability to predict a positive future. So. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's why I'm so interested in the concept of increasing IQ or increasing the, the, the G factor, not just the IQ score, but really what under this reasoning ability. So, you know, some people have tried to teach college students critical thinking. Yeah. I think that's a good thing. It you is. Can, you can smart and you can think critically so much the better. Exactly. You know, 
And, you know, it may sound to your listeners, I just want to take a, a moment out here, it may sound to your listeners like, here are these two guys pontificating about what it's like to be smart, what it's like to be not so smart. I mean, the point of this, the point of neuroscience research on intelligence, and what I hope to achieve by writing the book, was to show that, that the genetic aspects are not deterministic. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Genes are probabilistic. So the extent to which something like intelligence is genetic, in my view, is the extent to which we'll learn how to change it for, for, for the better. Right. Well, that's definitely, yeah, because people do tend to think about biological factors as deterministic, and that, that's a mistake because they can be shifted. So with regards to the animal study, so, you know, you pointed out that you can, you can come up with an IQ-like estimate for, say, a rat. And... Have you seen anything that indicates, I don't care how it's done, through training or, or, or neurochemically or, or, or by, by promoting brain function in different ways, however you might do it, that's actually indicated to you that there is a way of biologically enhancing the general cognitive ability even of an animal? Has anything just, come out credible? Just by breeding mice who run a maze faster than other mice together you get mice that seem to be able to learn how to run a maze faster. But that's work from the 1980s. Right. I review this in, in the book. There are some interesting uh, technologies that have been developed where you can turn parts of a rat brain on and off at will and see what happens. This has not yet been applied, as far as I know, to learning. Mm -hmm. But interestingly... There are human studies underway with things like uh, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation and electrical ways to low-voltage low, uh, ways to stimulate parts of the brain. And there are some interesting experiments now being done with humans to see if you can improve learning or reasoning ability. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, I edit this journal called Intelligence, which is kind of a prime spot for intelligence researchers uh, to publish on all aspects of intelligence. And we're just starting to put together a special issue on human experiments to increase reasoning ability using these these uh, techniques of stimulating the brain. Are any of you seen you've seen some positive things with regards to low level electrical stimulation because that's also been used. You know, it's more it's more anecdotal, but there's a bit of research being used that, to treat depression, for example. That's right, and I do cover in in the book the 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 studies that were published up until the time I, I wrote the book and cautioned people that they hadn't been replicated yet. Right, right, right. But we're on the way. I mean, this is, this is an evolving area that's going to be very exciting. I mean, if students are listening to this podcast and they're thinking about neuroscience or psychology, this kind of experiment is, is, is really a new phase of intelligence research where you can do experiments on human beings that are completely ethical um, and relatively non-intrusive, uh, uh, and this is gonna, really going to change everything now because it'll shift intelligence research from basically psychometric correlations yeah. past what neuroimaging has done, which which really moved it away from just psychometrics, and then you know correlating psychometric 
scores with measurable aspects of the brain, like glucose metabolic function or the amount of gray matter or white matter or the number of white matter fibers. I mean, there are all these fabulous connections. Right, right. That was a new phase. I, I got in early on that phase. But that phase is now moving into this new phase of uh, actually stimulating the brain to improve learning and memory and, and, and reasoning, and all the while doing it with neuroimaging right. to see what happens and adding DNA to it. I mean, come on now. This is a great time to right. be entering the research in this area. Right, right. Well, there's some optimism on the horizon. I mean, I looked for a while um, because I've been very interested in improving human performance, measuring it and improving it. And uh, so I look, and I'm doing that also in conjunction with businesses because I like things to have a practical end. And, you know, I look to find out what the research indicated with regards to improvement of intelligence. And mostly what I found was not so much improvement as conservation, is that if you exercise both uh, aerobically and, and with weightlifting, that that can help you maintain your uh, fluid intelligence across for longer across your lifespan, because it t tends to decline rather precipitously as you age, which is one of the more dismal things that you also discover with IQ research, and it starts to decline when you're in your early 20s, and it's kind of linear downhill all the way along, but exercise really helps. But, exercise, but it's, it's preservation, which is pretty yeah. important at my age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, preservation uh, is a big deal, man, but enhancement would be good. But you know, this thing about an IQ pill, coming up with a way, you know, to manipulate your your the neurobiology of your brain to, uh, regarding intellect. If there's a breakthrough in this, it will come either from Alzheimer's research or from normal aging research, trying to prevent the, the slow decline of your mental faculties as you age, especially fluid intelligence. Right. Uh, or trying to reverse the ravages of Alzheimer's disease. These are neurochemical problems. Right. You know? Right. And yes, well, an IQ seems to be quite tightly, tightly linked to... Well, this is another thing we could talk about, because... So, um, I know that there are certain biological markers that IQ is loosely associated with. So, you know, it, 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 fragment, fra it predicts in a fragmentary matter. So, I know that even something as simple as simple reaction time, how fast you can push a button when a light comes on, is correlated with IQ, with, with fluid intelligence, at about 0.2. And um, having a bigger head is slightly correlated, especially when you correct for body size. And so is brain mass, and so is thickness of um, the myelin sheaths on individual neurons. And so there are these, there's these micro-markers of you might think about them as neurological integrity that seem to predict IQ, but you've been doing neuroimaging, and I'm not as up on that. I haven't looked at that for a couple of years. So what have the neuroimagers found about brain structure and function in relationship to intelligence that you think is compelling and interesting? Glad you asked this, because as I was finishing the manuscript for the book, literally, the day after I turned it in, I had to ask for it back because there was this very interesting study published by a group at Yale that has uh, that used a, a fairly um, sophisticated way to look at white matter connections, functional 
structural white matter connections and functional connections in the brain. Um, and determining how one brain area is uh, functionally or structurally, structurally related to all other brain areas. And you uh, can put up a map of a, of a person's brain that shows from brain imaging, from MRI technology, how their brain is interconnected. <clears throat> and this paper said these interconnections are so reliable within a person that they're like fingerprints. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but the fingerprints can predict IQ. And so uh, is it density of connections, density of interconnections or something like that? Or is there more so, something more specific going on? It can be the density of, of connections structurally, how much white matter connects this area to that area. You know, and there are certain brain areas where you have a lot of white matter coming in and a lot of white matter going out to other parts of the brain. They're called hubs, mm -hmm. and there are nodes that have lesser connections. And so it makes kind of, it certainly makes sense that being able to make measurements of brain connectivity would be related to things like intelligence. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you remember what some of the major hubs were? Like, are they identifiable as also as neuroanatomical areas with specific yes. functions? Well, they're, they're definitely neuroanatomical areas. Um, and they're, they're what you might expect. But they, what was exciting to me is they mapped onto a, uh, a model of brain intelligence relationships that I had developed with my colleague Rex Young and published in 2007. And it's called the Parietal Frontal Integration Theory, or PFIT, of intelligence. And the idea is that the connections between the parietal lobe, which is here, and the frontal area are the key connections for intelligence. Okay, so tell us, tell us why you, you derived that particular theory, because, you know, people have suggested, say, alternatively, that the seat of, of higher order intelligence is basically, let's say, the dorsal lateral prefrontal right. cortex or something like that. So why specifically the, connect, the connection patterns between frontal and, and parietal areas? Well, this article in 2007 was a review article where we took every single brain imaging study we could find that included a measure of intelligence, and there were 37 such studies at the time, including some I had done as early as 1988, and others had done with much larger samples. And we just kind of qualitatively analyzed the results to see what brain areas came up in common across these studies using different measures, different imaging techniques, and we found that there was not an, that not all brain areas were equally distributed. They tended to be concentrated in the front and the parietal lobe, but also we found areas in the occipital lobe and the temporal lobe that were also related to intelligence. And so we developed this model that we talked about how information would be processed and how information would flow around this set of, I think there were 18 areas all mm -hmm. And we hypothesized that people who scored high on intelligence tests 
would have some combination of these areas. You didn't need all of them kind of working together. But some people would have this combination, some people would have that combination. And if you could make measurements of, about the way information was flowing around these areas with a technology like the magnetoencephalogram, which shows changes in the brain millisecond by millisecond, then you might be able to uh, actually estimate IQ from brain images. Mm -hmm. 2007, people were trying to do this with multiple regression equations. It never really replicated. Independent replications didn't go very far. Yeah, yeah. Because the sample sizes were relatively small. You had enormous individual differences. Yeah. But these newer techniques, these mathematical techniques of calculating brain connectivity really seem to have advanced this whole thing dramatically. So was there a map between the, the nodes that were identified in this more recent research and the areas that you guys had identified with your overarching analysis? Yes. To, to the way Rex Jung and I looked at the data, it seemed like it, there was considerable overlap. And some of the authors who we did not know personally when they wrote their papers noted that their findings were consistent with our model. Now, any, hem any hemispheric differences? We have, yes, there were, there were more on the left than on the right, but there, there were also areas on the right as well. And we, these areas tend to be areas that are also related to uh, language and memory and attention. So the more fundamental cognitive processes of language and memory and attention seem to be the 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 architecture on which intelligence is right built. right hey do you here's a question that i haven't been able to figure out because i've looked at the attention literature a lot and the more i look at the attention literature the more i find it difficult to distinguish it from the intelligence literature i mean attention and intelligence seem to be different things and we certainly use the words in common parlance as different but i haven't really been able to like imagine you wanted to establish a battery of attention related tests that were independent of g loaded uh yeah. cognitive abilities i haven't seen anybody manage that and so do do you what do you think the difference is between the capacity to pay attention which also seems to be associated with conscientiousness, by the way, which isn't associated with IQ. But, I mean, what's the relationship between intent, attention and intelligence as far as you're concerned? Those studies have been done where they take cognitive variables, the elemental cognitive tasks is what they call them, the, the real basic things that cognitive psychologists like to study because yep. they like to study reasoning. Right. You know, and they'll study learning and memory but they don't want to address why some people learn faster than other people uh, or why some people can remember more than other people. Right. That's what cognitive psychologists study. They study what's common to everybody. But if you look at these elemental cognitive tasks, you can extract a, a G factor of cognition, which is highly correlated with a psychometric G factor sure, from sure. abilities. Uh, more than attention, Memory, aspects of memory are more correlated to the G factor. Uh, processing speed is correlated. Right, sure. And attention is, is also correlated. So, you know, I kind of have this uh, idea from being a parent, watching my kids grow up, that people differ in their 
baseline of attention when they're not specifically paying attention. This might be called consciousness. So, you know, you have two kids walking through a museum for an hour, and you come out and you say to kid one, so what did you see? And you get a whole long thing. And you ask the other kid, well, what did you see there? And you get a much less rich explanation. Yeah. Of what yeah, it's, I've it's, always thought about that as a difference in resolution of worlds. Well, yeah, call it what you will, but, you know, th there are these differences. And, uh, you know, we have we've actually studied consciousness with brain imaging uh, with my friend Mike Alkire, who's an anesthesiologist. We did the first imaging studies where we brought normal volunteers in and Mike gave them uh, anesthetic drugs to knock them out completely while they underwent brain imaging. Mm -hmm. And we had different levels of anesthesia. We were trying to see what part of the brain is the last part of the brain to turn off when you lose consciousness. And then what's And did you find anything that you could make sense out of from that? Because, that, of course, that's obviously an extraordinarily interesting question. I mean, yeah. is it the collapse of these networks? Is, well, is, is consciousness the real expert on this. He's published a whole series of papers. And the, the, the mechanism of consciousness is still one of the great Nobel Prize winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that. That's my interpretation of literature too. It's like, it, it, it's, it's such a mystery that it, it seems uncrackable in some sense. Well, what was good about the imaging stuff here? You could study this experimentally. Yep. You know, you could you could put people in, into different levels of consciousness and bring them out at will and see what how the the brain reacted. So the thalamus seems to be in, in, in important. A lot of people yeah. are working on thalamus connections. Uh, and each anesthetic, there are categories of anesthetics. And they, work, they have different mechanisms of action in the brain, yet they all produce the same uh, consequence when you right. lose consciousness. Right. That's, an, that's a very interesting thing, too. So uh, I, know that, I know with the thalamic, uh, what, what is it, cortical thalamic loops, yeah. I mean, there's a guy named Vol. What's his name? Voldemeyer? God, it's close to that. I, I'm afraid I hasn't, haven't got it right. He suggests that um, one, of the, one of the consequences of psychedelic drugs is to decrease the gating of, of the thalamic cortical circuitry, and, and that that's one of the mechanisms whereby that expanded, at least, sense of consciousness emerges as a, con you know, as a, as a consequence of experimentation yeah. with this with the psychedelic end of the pharmaceutical universe yeah so. I have a section in the in the book where I talk about consciousness and the, these studies and try to relate the concept that if you can turn consciousness off you should be able to turn it on I mean no anesthesiologists do this at will yep even though they don't understand what they're doing right right you know uh, <laughs> Uh, they, they can't tell you why it works, but then can you use, if, if anesthetic drugs kind of dissociate the brain and creativity seems to be related to a dissociation of the frontal lobes, can low doses, very, very low doses of anesthetic drugs cause just enough disinhibition to increase your creativity. Mm -hmm. And? 
I don't think this experiment has ever been done. Well, I know you see something similar in that sometimes reported with people who develop frontotemporal dementia. At exactly right. You know, is that as and that's 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 a very strange phenomenon where as your brain deteriorates, your creativity increases because so much of brain function seems to be inhibitory. That's so right. I don't know of a comparable disease that produces increases in intelligence. Right. No, no, I've never heard of in that. In, oh, yeah, the other thing that's been, so you can tell me what you think about this. I mean, I was curious for a while about these companies like Lumosity, because when we developed our original prefrontal ta tasks, they weren't tests. They, were, they kind of had a game-like element, you know, and we kind of thought, well, maybe if you had people practice doing them, um, they would obviously get better at the specific task, because that is what people do. But then if you had people practice a whole bunch of them, maybe they would get better at the whole at the entirety of the tasks in a way that would generalize to other to other measures like like the Raven's progressive matrices, which is a good measure of, of fluid intelligence. But that never works. And of course the Lumosity people claimed that they were able to produce enhancement in general intelligence, but by all appearances appearances that's been a, that's been a dismal failure as well. It's it's it, it's very strange in some sense that that general factor doesn't seem to be something that you can actually improve by practice. Right. And, well, you, you know, know like, what the hell? Why, why? I can't just I just don't get that. It doesn't make sense. But here's something you don't know about me, I'll bet. But I am in the Guinness Book of Records, the gamers edition, because of my study, my brain imaging study of Tetris. Hmm. And I did a brain imaging study of Tetris. I think it was published in 1992. I, I really wanted to do a study of learning. I wanted to see what happened in the brain before and after you learn something. Yeah. And back in 1991 when I was doing this, nobody had personal computers. Nobody had ever heard of Tetris. Computer games were, were not what they are today. Right. And I went to the Egghead software store, when they had software stores that had just opened, and I was talking to the guys there about, I needed something where I could study before and after they learned something relatively simple. Yep, yep, yep. They showed me this game Tetris. It had just come in. They just had opened the box. They put it up on the computer there, and I thought, boy, this is really perfect. It's simple to learn, yep, but yep. there's an enormous learning curve, and we, we brought in uh, college students, a small number of college students, and we showed them how to play Tetris. They practiced for a few minutes. We injected the radioactive glucose for positron emission tomography. And we did PET scan studies of them that very first day they played Tetris for 32 minutes. They then practiced every day. They had to come to my office because nobody had a PC at home. They came to my office five days a week for about four weeks. They practiced until they got so good at Tetris, you know, the game was moving faster. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's amazing how good people can get at that. Yeah, sort of thing. You, you, you couldn't even believe a human being could do yeah, that. Yeah, I know. It's, I've watched people do that sort of thing. It's just absolutely unbelievable how good they can get at it. Right, and when they got really good, we scanned them a second time. Yeah. And we found that even though the game was faster and harder, when they had learned how to do it, they used less glucose metabolic rate. Okay, so now, was that also, okay, so I knew that research, I read that research. Now, that, what do you think about the, now, the problem is I can't remember where this research came from, because I also read at approximately the same time studies that appeared to claim, and I think this was reviewed by Elkonen Goldberg in his book on uh, 
on hemispheric specialization for routinization and, and novelty, respectively, that as you, when you first start to learn something novel, and I think this was demonstrated, for example, in people who were listening, they were Danish native speakers who were listening to Danish in reverse, and they used very large part portions of their brain when they were listening to Danish in reverse. But if they were listening to Danish properly spoken, they used very small specified parts of the brain that were located in the latter or in the in the back part of the of the left hemisphere. And and there was another group of researchers who were demonstrating that as you learned, the degree of activation decreased and it shifted from the right to the left and it shifted from the front to the back and it got smaller and smaller. And is that associated with that decreased glucose utilization? Is that the same phenomena? I, I think it is. I think we were the first to, to, to show it. Yeah. We had done one, one imaging study before this Tetris study where we just correlated uh, glucose metabolic rate with scores on a test of abstract reasoning, a high G-loaded test. Yeah. They had taken the test during the imaging. So we got to see what brain areas were involved, and we did find some brain areas, but the really interesting, surprising thing was the correlation between the scores and glucose metabolic rate was always negative. Uh -huh. The better they did on the test, the lower their glucose metabolic rate, and that was the first inkling we had about this idea of brain efficiency. Right, right, Subsequently, right. That, there's been a lot of research on that. Uh, and it turns out to be a complicated thing because nothing about the brain is simple. Right. But, uh, yeah, but it does seem to make perfect sense that expert skill is associated with doing more with less. It, it makes sense now, but I tell you, nobody predicted it. And no, it, no, I look, I understand. I, that's that that research that research stood out for me in a very in a very uh, you know in a, in, in a very striking manner. So but it also gets at this thing about that you raised about practicing on different kinds of tests. Yeah. Because one of the attractive things about Tetris is it's visual, spatial. It's planning ahead. You know, it's attention. There are a lot of elemental cognitive tasks necessary. You know, it's fine motor control, really necessary to, to do well on Tetris and to learn it really well. And so the Tetris company found my research some years later and asked if I'd be willing to try to replicate it with more modern imaging, which of course I was willing to do. Mm -hmm. So they, they funded this, and uh, we found now instead of PET scanning, we use functional MRI and structural MRI both. And we did find, like we found with the, the PET scanning, there were areas where after uh, teenage girls with very limited gaming experience learned Tetris, uh, their uh, brain activity decreased, but we also found from uh, the structural MRI that there were increases in gray matter and the really interesting thing is the areas where there were increases in gray matter did not overlap at all with the areas that functionally decreased. It would have been a terrific story. Wow. That's strange. Yeah, well things are always more complicated than you hope them to be. Not only that, but I can tell you that every time I did a brain imaging study, we always found the exact opposite of what we expected. Not well, just that, that, sounds, that sounds to me like you know you might actually be be uh, be operating as a real scientist. Well, because, I mean things are so damn complicated that it's really difficult to guess right to begin with. 
Well, it led to one of my three laws that I based the book on. Law number one is no story about the brain is simple. Law number two is no one study is definitive. And law number three is it takes a long time to sort out all the various studies to see what's consistent and what establishes a reliable weight of evidence. Okay, so, so, so let, let me put you on a different track momentarily, and maybe this won't work, but, but, but you know, I'm always curious about, uh, let's say, the practical implications of scientific research, both at a, at a personal level, familial level, social level, all of those things, you know. So, I mean, one of the things that I'm planning to do in the near future is to launch a website that will enable people to assess themselves with what we've developed a scale called the Big Five Aspect Scale that breaks the Big Five down into 10 aspects, each of which, which provides some additional high-resolution and useful descriptions of personality. So you'll be able to go there and find out what your personality is like. You'll be able to compare yourself to other people who you know to find out where your similarities and differences are. But one of the things we've been thinking about doing as well is putting up on the same site a real IQ test, like nicely validated, probably focusing on fluid intelligence because it's a little bit less linguistically complex to do so, but maybe measuring verbal intelligence, and then showing people the strata of occupations in which they're likely to find maximal success. Because, you know, from, for me, given that I know that, that people vary in their cognitive abilities tremendously and that that's actually an important determinant of their life outcome, it seems to me, so let's say someone tests out at an IQ of around 115. And so you can say, look, you know, you're pretty damn smart. You're, you're up above 85% of the general population. You, you, could, you could probably do a pretty damn good job as an undergraduate in university if you're also disciplined, right? If you were conscientious, you hit the books hard, you're going you're gonna to come out in the top quartile of your class, assuming that you're not at a spectacularly, success, uh, uh, spectacularly selective university. But you're going to have a much more difficult time as a master's student, and PhD level stuff is going to be, you're going to be pushing your luck to, to really master that. But, you know, you could be, here's a, here's a domain of, 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 what would you call it, industrial organizational activity, where you could really be in the top, 10 percentile you know it's like so if you have an iq of 115 like you might make one bang up plumber and you could have a spectacularly successful career as a plumber and maybe as a manager of other plumbers and all of that and you know and i mean i actually happen to be a real aficionado of the trade so i certainly don't think of that as something that's a that's a low quality or low status occupation in the least but we would we would like to tell people okay here's here's Here's, a, here's an intellectual domain that's probably too high for you to be successful without working insane hours to, 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 to close the gap. Because you can do that with insane work up to some, some limited degree. But it seems to me that the logical thing to do, at least in part, is to give people a sense of what their advantages and limitations are and then say to them, okay, well, given that, here's a place that you could go where you could be optimally successful and so you know that's kind of my take from a policy perspective let's say but like what have you thought about you know the massive diversity and in intellectual ability I mean what are the implications from a policy perspective as far as you're concerned well I think vocational guidance is clearly one I actually did some consulting and some research for a nonprofit group called the Johnson O'Connor Foundation which is uh, vocational testing 
they're not that big on G, but they have their own battery of tests. They bring someone in um, and do a full day of, of cognitive tests. And from that, they give some advice about what kinds of professions match their cognitive strengths and weaknesses. And I actually did some brain imaging uh, on their tests, and it was very, you know very interesting stuff. Um, did but, you think they do? Did you think? See, because it's hard to do the psychometrics properly with regards to vocational guidance, because we don't really know. We don't have a good handle on how to classify jobs into their various subtypes. Like John Holland has done some good work doing that, but but there's so many jobs, and it's hard to figure out well what makes two jobs the same. Or similar, you know. You no, know, I was at Hopkins when Holland was there, and some of my friends who were graduate students worked for him, and I learned all about that vocational testing. It's very powerful, and as you know, it's that's more his his scales have kind of morphed into more personality like dimensions. Yeah, well, that that's it. You want that? Well, that's exactly the nexus that we want to play out. It's like okay, because there is a reason. I know people have been mapping Holland's. Holland's job categories onto the big five and with a fair bit of success, you know, and we're hoping that the differentiation down to the to 10 levels of personality will provide even more precision. But but with more general policy, let okay, so fine. So reasonable vocational counseling, that's a good idea. When does it start? Does it start in junior high? Like do you do what the Europeans do and start to track people into trades and, and, and higher ed education at that kind of early age? The Europeans seem to have had great success with that. So it's certainly... Yeah, the Germans in particular. Yeah, so it's reasonable to look at. But the problem in the United States, there are so many problems with the way we um, uh, conceptualize education. And the, the whole idea of tracking, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the United States, this idea of tracking has a very negative balance to it. You know, segregating the smart kids into one one uh, set of classes and the, the, the less smart kids into others, and then there's remedial education. And, and there's been a, a tendency, a strong tendency in the United States to feel that kids learn from each other. So you don't want homogeneous groups based on learning ability. You want... Uh, yeah, it's so funny, though, because it's so funny because the people say that with regards to to let's say academic achievement but they play exactly the opposite stunt when it comes to such things as as childhood sports you know so if you look at football for example it's like well hey let's segregate like ability it's like you don't have the people who stumble around on the field dropping the ball all the time playing with the top end quarterbacks and nobody thinks there's a problem with that they don't say well everyone learns from everyone else in that situation so to me it, it bespeaks more of a refusal to admit to the stark reality that there are massive cognitive differences between people and to try to actually start to address that with some degree of seriousness. And the seriousness should be something like, okay, well, let's look at the bottom 15% of the population, cognitively speaking. It's like, what the hell can we do for those people that's going to be useful? And, you know, like the guy that I was telling you about, I was trying to think of some way that he could find a, a respectable and productive and relatively stable position in society that would be useful. And I thought there was a couple of things he could do. Like, one of the things he could have done, I think he could have been encouraged, let's say, to to collect trash in the downtown areas. Like, he could have been assigned a city block and 
and it could have been said to him, look, your job is to keep this damn city block clean. Here's a bag, here's a stick, you get up in the morning, you go do this. It's like, makes everybody's life more pleasant. It's a valuable contribution. It's something you could do with a certain degree of pride, and, it, and there's a socially valuable end of it. Now, what happens in Toronto is that people drive around these vacuum cleaner machines on sidewalks and pick up the, the, the scrap paper and all of that. That actually turns out to be a very cognitively demanding job because, well, you have to pay careful attention. You can't run over people. You have to have decent social skills. And, you know, it's complicated, but it might be nice to see. But, we, but we're not mature enough to have a discussion like this as a society. We might want to say is like, okay, well, there's a group of people who aren't going to be able to compete in the, in the cognitive workplace. They're, they're not going to do it. And there's actually lots of them. And we're not going to say they're lazy and we're not going to say they're not looking for work. We're not going to say any of that. We're going to say, look, we need to find occupations that have public utility, that aren't just make work projects, that people of that level of abstract capacity could actually perform. But I don't think we have the maturity to have that conversation. We don't have the economics. And so I, I would go even a little to the left of you, and I would say there's nothing wrong with make-work programs, you know, to, to, to allow people, I mean, you have, you know, to, to work with dignity. So you have that option, but you also have this interesting uh, experiment being proposed of the minimum annual income. Yeah. Well, that one worries me because, see, there's a couple of things about that one that concerns me because, you know, so we're having a conversation here where we're taking um, differences in IQ seriously. But the problem with the guaranteed annual income issue, I think, one of the problems, and I'm not denying its potential utility, it's something I think that would have to be experimentally determined, you know, and all of that. And, and maybe it could replace a plethora of less efficient social welfare programs. But, you know, it isn't obvious to me it's obvious to me that there's a substantial proportion of the population, and I would say it's probably 5%, that would destroy themselves instantly if you gave them a guaranteed annual income. And they would do it because they're very low in conscientiousness, for example, and very impulsive. And like I've worked with many guys, often ex-cocaine addicts, who were often not all that high on the end of the cognitive distribution, but very, very low in conscientiousness, high in impulsivity. And those guys were absolutely fine as long as they were flat broke. But mm. man, I tell you, as soon as they had money, they were done. It was mm. like three days in the bar, cocaine binge, face down in a ditch, and then they were fine until they got money again. And so I don't, the problem with the guaranteed annual income solution is that you know, man does not live by bread alone, let's say. And the, the, if you have money and you have things to do, then you have a life. But if you just have money, you don't have a life. Well, you know, I, I look at, you know, I have a very narrow lens on this. What do I know about the big social policies? And, you know, I don't know anything about that more than anybody else. I have opinions like everybody. But my narrow lens is through intelligence. Yep. I think more is better than less. Yep. Having more doesn't make you a better person, doesn't make you honest, doesn't make you likable, doesn't make you conscient, doesn't, doesn't solve the problems of the world. But if we can do something to increase intelligence generally, I think that would go 
in some measure toward alleviating a lot of these these uh, very complex problems. So Im imagine the homelessness problem. Some proportion of chronically homeless people have schizophrenia. Yeah. Schizophrenia is a genetic disorder. Nobody knows what the genes are or how they work, but it's pretty clear there's a genetic component. If you can find the genes, figure out what they do, and come up with real good treatments, if not cures, for schizophrenia and possibly preventions for schizophrenia, that indirectly is going to help alleviate the homeless problem. Right. So I don't know what to do about the homeless, but if you can figure out what to do about schizophrenia, that's going to have some impact on that. Yes, it's basically, yeah. Well, you, you know, your claim to some degree is that these more complex social problems should be decomposed into isolatable micro-problems and that specific solutions should be sought for them. And that, that certainly strikes me as an appropriate approach. Because so, everybody is different. Not everyone's yes. for the same reason. No, no. Well, that's for sure. That's for sure. Not, every, not everyone's poor for the same, for the same reason by any stretch of the imagination. Right. That's right. Poverty is doesn't have one cause. No, no but the fact, fifty, and, and it's not merely caused by lack of money either, because that would be a much easier problem to solve. Unfortunately, it's not so simple. So the one thing that we're probably getting toward the end, the one thing I would like to leave your listeners with, is really optimism. These are not dismal problems in perpetuity, because the genetic approach, I think, and I, I'm kind of out. You know, I'm kind of out there on this. This is not a mainstream view. But I think the more something is genetic, the more likely it is we can change it for the good. And that's why we should study the genetics of intelligence. That's why I hope genes have more to do with it than environment. Not, you know, not yep. because I, I, I want to do something nefarious with genes. And I understand the history of this very yes, well. Yes, yes. But it's because I think in neuroscience, there's, there's optimism. And to guard against the negative aspects, the potential negative aspects of this, the only solution is to have public conversation about this. And to get people to understand IQ, intelligence, G-factor, these are not all the same things. They have different relationships to the data, to the genetic data particularly. So we have to understand these things. And once we have some sense of this, and not paint people who believe in, in that there's a genetic component as, as, our, as a priori racist or malevolent people. Um, I think we, we, we can come to a common understanding about how genes and environment interact and figure out how all that works and begin to think how in the year 2050 or 2060 we're going to have to resolve that have resolved some of these issues to practical benefit. Well, that is a good place to leave it, I think. And we've had a very productive discussion, so I think that's probably a nice place to, to, to bring everything to a close. I've been speaking with Dr. Richard Heyer, who studies the neural basis of human intelligence and cognition, and who has recently released a new book called the Neuroscience of Intelligence, published by Cambridge University Press. It's an academic book, but for people who are interested in a serious discussion of the relationship between biology and intelligence, then it's a good go-to tome. And uh, it's, it's an extraordinarily important topic, given the undeniable primacy of intelligence as the fundamental predictor of, of 
of, let's say, success in many, many domains in, in across the human lifespan. So thank you very much for spending an hour or so with us today. And, uh, and uh, with any luck, maybe we'll talk to you again in the future. I'd like to talk to you perhaps about consciousness at some point. That might be entertaining. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I appreciate the chance of having more than three sentences, you know, uh, three uh, sentences, uh, you know, uh, uh, related to, to your listeners. Uh, I just want to say one thing about the book. It is written for the lay public as well. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good thing to know. Cambridge wouldn't let me call it the neuroscience of intelligence, colon, what every parent and student needs to know about uh, neuroscience. But because they wanted to market it as a strictly academic book, but uh, it's getting a, quite a bit of attention just among uh, non-academic readers. Okay, well, excellent. Well, I'll I'll make sure that I I mention that in the description, which I will I'll post a link to the book probably on Amazon. I, I, right. That's usually the most straightforward thing, and also point out that it is in fact written for people who aren't only specialists in the area. So that was good. All right, thanks. Yep. Thanks a lot. Hey, listen, thank you very much. I appreciate it. No problem. It's a pleasure talking with you, too. Good to meet you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.